Chapter Three of Recollections of Abraham Lincoln, eighteen forty seven to eighteen sixty five, by Ward Hill Lamon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by John Greenman. Chapter Three Inauguration. If before leaving Springfield Mr. Lincoln had become weary of the pressure upon him for office, he found no respite on his arrival at the focus of political intrigue and corruption. The time intervening between his arrival at Washington and his inauguration was, for the most part, employed in giving consideration to his inaugural address, the formation of his cabinet, and the conventional duties required by his elevated position. The question of the new administration's policy absorbed nearly every other consideration. To get a cabinet that would work harmoniously in carrying out the policy determined on by Mr. Lincoln was very difficult. He was pretty well determined to the construction of his cabinet before he reached Washington, but in the minds of the public, beyond the generally accepted fact that Mr. Seward was to be the premier of the new administration, all was speculation and conjecture. All grades of opinion were advanced for his consideration. Conciliation was strongly urged, a vigorous war policy, a policy of quiescent neutrality, recommending delay of demonstrative action for or against war, and all or nearly all these suggestions were prompted by the most unselfish and patriotic motives. He was compelled to give a patient ear to these representations, and to hold his decisions till the last moment, in order that he might decide with a full view of the requirements of public policy and party fealty. As late as the 2nd of March, a large and respectable delegation of persons visited Mr. Lincoln to bring matters to a conclusion. Their object was to prevent at all hazards the appointment of Mr. Chase in the cabinet. They were received civilly and treated courteously. The President listened to them with great patience. They were unanimous in their opposition to Mr. Chase. Mr. Seward's appointment, they urged, was absolutely and indispensably required to secure for the administration either the support of the North or a respectful hearing at the South. They portrayed the danger of putting into the cabinet a man like Mr. Chase, who was so notoriously identified with and supported by men who did not desire the perpetuation of the Union. They strongly insisted that Mr. Chase would be an unsafe counselor, and that he and his supporters favored a northern republic extending from the Ohio River to Canada, rather than the Union which our fathers had founded. They urged another argument, which to them seemed of vital importance and conclusive, that it would not be possible for Mr. Seward to sit in the cabinet with Mr. Chase as a member. To think of it was revolting to him and neither he nor his state could or would tolerate it. These arguments, so earnestly put forth, distressed Mr. Lincoln greatly. At length, after a long pause, he replied that it was very difficult to reconcile conflicting claims and interests, that his greatest desire was to form an administration that would command the confidence and respect of the country, and of the party which had placed him in power. He spoke of his high regard for Mr. Seward, of his eminent services, his great genius, and the respect in which he was held by the country. He said Mr. Chase had also great claims that no one could gainsay. His claims were perhaps not so great as Mr. Seward's, but this he would not then discuss. 
the party and the country wanted the hearty and harmonious cooperation of all good men without regard to sections then there was an ominous pause mr lincoln went to a drawer and took out a paper saying i had written out my choice and selection of members for the cabinet after most careful and deliberate consideration and now you are here to tell me i must break the slate and begin the thing all over again he admitted that he had sometimes apprehended that it might be as they had suggested that he might be forced to reconsider what he regarded as his judicious conclusions and in view of this possibility he had constructed an alternative list of members he did not like the alternative list so well as the original he had hoped to have mr seward as secretary of state and mr chase his secretary of treasury he expressed his regrets that he could not be gratified in this desire and added that he could not reasonably expect to have things just as he wanted them silence prevailed for some time and he then added this being the case gentlemen how would it do for us to agree upon a change like this to appoint mr chase secretary of the treasury and offer the state department to mr william l dayton of new jersey the delegation was shocked disappointed outraged mr lincoln continuing in the same phlegmatic manner again referred to his high appreciation of the abilities of mr seward he said mr dayton was an old whig like mr seward and himself and that he was from new jersey and was next door to new york mr seward he added could go as minister to england where his genius would find wonderful scope in keeping europe straight about our home troubles the delegation was nonplussed they however saw and accepted the inevitable for the first time they realized that indomitable will of the president-elect which afterward became so notable throughout the trying times of his administration they saw that the mountain would not come to mohammed with the conditions imposed and so mohammed had to go to the mountain the difficulty was accommodated by mr seward coming into the cabinet with mr chase and the administrative organization was effected to mr lincoln's satisfaction mr seward was a republican with centralizing tendencies and had been a prominent and powerful member of the old whig party which had gone into decay mr chase was a states rights federal republican not having been strictly attached to either the whig or the democratic organization he had for years been a conspicuous leader of the anti-slavery party which had risen on the ruins of the whig party while mr seward had cautiously abstained from any connection with the anti-slavery party per se mr lincoln adopted whether consciously or unconsciously the policy of washington in bringing men of opposite principles into his cabinet as far as he could do so hoping that they would harmonize in administrative measures and in doing this in the case of mr seward and mr chase he entirely reversed the original arrangement by giving mr seward a republican centralist the post of jefferson a state's rights federal republican and to mr chase a federal republican the post assigned to hamilton a centralist there was a prevailing opinion among a great many politicians that mr seward had an overpowering influence with mr lincoln 
and the belief was general that he, in whose ability and moderation the conservative people at the North seemed to have the most confidence, would be the real head of the administration. This supposition was a great mistake. It underrated the man who had been elected to wield the helm of government in the troubled waters of the brewing storm. Mr. Lincoln was as self-reliant a man as ever breathed the atmosphere of patriotism. Up to the 2nd of March, Mr. Seward had no intimation of the purport of the inaugural address. The conclusion was inevitable that, if he was to be at the head of the administration, he would not have been left so long in the dark as to the first act of Mr. Lincoln's official life. When the last faint hope was destroyed that Mr. Seward was virtually to be president, the outlook of the country seemed to these politicians discouraging. The fourth of March at last arrived. Mr. Lincoln's feelings, as the hour approached, which was to invest him with greater responsibilities than had fallen upon any of his predecessors, may readily be imagined. If he saw in his elevation another step toward the fulfillment of that destiny which he at times believed awaited him, the thought served to tinge with a peculiar, almost poetic sadness, the manner in which he addressed himself to the solemn duties of the hour. There were apprehensions of danger to Mr. Lincoln's person, and extensive preparations were made for his protection under the direction of Lieutenant General Scott. The carriage in which the President-elect rode to the Capitol was closely guarded by marshals and cavalry. Selected with care from the most loyal and efficient companies of the veteran troops and marines. Mr. Lincoln appeared, as usual, composed and thoughtful, apparently unmoved and indifferent to the excitement around him. On arriving at the platform he was introduced to the vast audience awaiting his appearance by Senator Baker of Oregon. Stepping forward, in a manner deliberate and impressive, the President-elect delivered, in a clear, penetrating voice, his inaugural address closing this remarkable production with the words which so forcibly exemplified his character and so clearly indicated his goodness of heart i am loath to close we are not enemies but friends we must not be enemies though passion may have strained it must not break our bonds of affection the mystic cords of memory, stretching from every battlefield and patriot grave to every living heart and hearthstone all over this broad land, will yet swell the chorus of the Union when again touched, as surely they will be, by the better angels of our nature." The immense audience present was deeply impressed, and with awe viewed the momentous character of the occasion they were given to contemplate. The address produced comparatively little applause and no manifestations of disapprobation. All were moved with a profound anxiety concerning their own respective states and the future of their country, and the sentiments they had just heard uttered from the chief executive foreshadowed the storm awaiting the nation. After the oath of office was administered to him by the venerable Chief Justice of the United States, Judge Roger B. Taney, 
Mr. Lincoln was escorted to the presidential mansion in the same order that was observed in going to the Capitol, amid the firing of cannon and the sound of music. Mr. Buchanan accompanied him, and in taking his leave expressed his wish and hope, in earnest and befitting language, that Mr. Lincoln's administration of the government would be a happy and prosperous one. The inauguration over, everyone seemed to have a sense of relief. There had been no accident, no demonstration which could be construed as portending disturbance. The New York delegation, on the night of the inauguration, paid their respects to the President. He said to them that he was rejoiced to see the good feeling manifested by them, and hoped that our friends of the South would be satisfied when they read his inaugural address, that he had made it as nearly right as it was possible for him to make it in accordance with the Constitution, which he thought was as good for the people who lived south of the Mason-Dixon line as for those who lived north of it. End of chapter 3. Inauguration. Read by John Greenman.